Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week as we discuss what is probably the most quoted and yet most misunderstood verse in the entire Bible, and that is, judge not that ye be not judged. Unbelievers will quote this, knowing its source. They will proudly say it is from the Bible and say things like, well, I mean, the Bible says that you shouldn't judge. And they bring this up anytime somebody makes some type of moral claim, uh, a claim of objective truth, a claim that a certain worldview or activity or practice is wrong. Uh, this is even used by Christians. I have heard this my fair share as a pastor, as somebody who deals with people on a frequent basis. It is something that Christians who like to justify certain things will quote. Now, here's the thing. If that's what the Bible means, if the Bible means, if what Jesus meant when he said judge not, is that we cannot impose any type of objective claim on anyone, we cannot uh, sit in judgment of anyone's moral choices, if that's what it means, then we have to accept that. The question is, is that what it means? What did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that ye be not judged? It is really, really, really important that we understand what judge not actually means. And that's going to be the topic of today's episode. So I pray that it is a blessing to you. And as always, please make sure that you are following the podcast. Leave us a five-star review and share this and other episodes with your friends on social media. And so we'll jump into this episode entitled, What Does Judge Not Actually Mean? Enjoy. Matthew chapter 7. This is every carnal Christian's favorite verse. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. That's right, we're done. Yeah, that's it. That is the ultimate moral imperative. Don't, don't judge. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about this. I've taught this before, but I think it's, uh, this is a good one, not only for us to understand, but also kind of as like a minor apologetic, you might say, of what Christianity actually is, because... This is the most, by far, it's not even close, the most misrepresented verse in the Bible. Like, there is no second place. There's no verse more misunderstood than this verse. And this, I guess, this explanation is going to show us the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is where you isolate a text out of its context and you just say, see, prima facie, it means this. It's like, well, no. So you can't divorce this statement from all the other things that Jesus is saying here. And when you understand everything else that Jesus is saying here, then we understand what it means when he says, don't judge. So I, I want us to explore that. We'll read verses 1 through 5, Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now, most people stop there, but the context is not over. Notice verse 3, the word and. <laughs> so he's still talking about the same thing. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest thou not, or excuse me, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, that's that judgment of others he's talking about in verse 1, 
and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first, he says, cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, notice this, shalt thou see clearly to do what? To cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So, again, most quoted verse in Scripture, <laughs> which is kind of funny, um, I think it's usurped John 3.16 as the most quoted verse of all time, but it's also the most misunderstood. So, in reality, what this is, is a dire warning to all of us. This is not just a kind of blanket, um, a, a blanket command to nobody judge any other person, don't impose any type of moral objectivity on anybody. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a dire warning to some extent about the flawed nature of our own perceptions. You see, we have an oversimplified conception of the problem and the solution. The easiest way to offload your responsibility to change is to subcontract that out to somebody else and pretend that they're actually the problem when they're really not. The problem is you. And by the way, the problem is always you. Like fundamentally, the problem is always you. And that's one of the most difficult things for us to understand is Jesus did not come to this earth and then say, well, I'm listen, this is y'all's problem. So, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. Sorry, this is not my problem. He took every, <laughs> every problem of the world upon himself. Like, that's the Christian imperative, is to pick up a cross. Well, uh, so that cross is not the cross that you're carrying for yourself, per se. It's a cross that you're carrying, by definition, for someone else. You're living as Christ lived. You're living a sacrificial life. So the problem, then, is you. The problem is me. It's my unwillingness to pick up a cross and to bear someone else's burdens. That's fundamentally what the issue is. But it's easier to say, don't judge me. That's a lot easier. And that gets me out from underneath the responsibility, or at least I think it does. So I want to explore this idea as we talk on the subject of judge not. All right, so quick background of the text. So right here, we're again, Matthew chapter 7. We're pretty early in the narrative. Jesus' public ministry has really just begun. Great multitudes are following him as he's teaching, preaching in the street, healing people. People from all over the region, the Bible tells us. Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the other side of the Jordan River are now gathering to hear him speak. And Jesus leads this multitude, the Bible says, up to a small mountain outside of his hometown of Capernaum, just to the northwest, and he sits down and delivers the most famous sermon of all time called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we get to Matthew 7.1, we need to understand where this passage sits in the overall sermon. Here's one thing that people do with Jesus' sermons and many of his statements that I think is uh, not helpful, which is we pretend that they're all little isolated phrases and they're not connected. That's not true. The truth is they're connected in some of the most profound ways that we could ever possibly understand. A good sermon is always connected. The, the next thought is, was always preceded by a, you know, a sister thought and then so on, forward and backwards. And the Sermon on the Mount is essentially one sermon. It's one sermon. It's not 17,000 thoughts. Jesus isn't just like, and, uh, and this, and do this. Oh, yeah, and uh, blessed are the peacemakers, and let's see, uh, the meek, 
they're going to see God, and like that's the way we read it. Like it's all these like random statements back to back to back, but it's really not. Um, a good demonstration of this is, I believe it's, I forget which version of the sermon on about it's in, but where Jesus talks about, um, it's here as well, but it's not this text. But Jesus talks about asking for a fish and you'll receive a fish, ask for bread, you'll receive bread, and, and the Father will give the Holy Spirit to them to ask Him. And then before that it says, cast not your pearls before the swine and all this kind of stuff. And it, it's here in Matthew as well. But the idea there is people, again, they split up that passage into three or four statements. None of the whole thing's about prayer. Like that whole section is about prayer. And I teach that in a lesson called Prayer is a Conversation, where he's teaching us how to get our prayers answered. And if you begin at the first thought and you understand the context, you'll see it. Okay, the same thing is true here as well. But where does this passage sit in the Sermon on the Mount? So in the beginning, he gives them the famous Beatitudes. Then he tells them the parable of salt and light. And he contends that in spite of the accusations of some, that he was not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He teaches on forgiveness, the wickedness of adultery, the integrity of keeping your word, not returning evil for evil. He tells them to love their enemies, do their good works privately, teaches them how to pray, admonishes them to seek God first instead of worldly provision. Okay? Then he says, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So that's where we're at. So he's covered a lot of ground, but again, a lot of this is about relationships. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' sermon in the very beginning, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments in a way. It's split up. It's like, here's, your, here's what your devotion to God should look like, and here's what your devotion to your fellow man should look like. It's a very Ten Commandments type principled sermon, right? And really, that's, that's where the entire law hangs, right? Love God, love your neighbor. This is a love God and love your neighbor sermon. That's the theme. Like, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? That's it. It's an explanation of Jesus' dictum to love God and love your neighbor, and that fulfills all the law. Right? That's what's happening. You have, think about the symbolism. You have a crowd that's come out from the wilderness, let's say, and they're all together, and they go up into a mountain, and a central figure tells them what to do. It's Moses. It's, it's Moses in the mount delivering the commandments. Like, that's what's happening. That's the symbolism here. Like, clearly. Like, could it be anything else? <laughs> like, that's definitely what it is. And Moses himself said, God will raise up a prophet like me, and him shall ye hear. Okay, here is Jesus in that place as lawgiver, but what is the law that he's giving? Okay, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. He told that to his disciples. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, I'm explaining the new covenant to you. I'm explaining your relationship with God and then your relationship with each other. Here's the commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. This is an explanation of what that looks like in practice. Okay, so part of that command to love God and love your neighbor must explain what I do about the sins of my neighbor, the mistakes of my neighbor, his transgressions, and specifically, potentially, his transgressions against me or maybe his public transgressions that I then have, you know, I can say something, I cannot say something, I can do something, I cannot do something, what do I do? So this is underneath the heading of love God and love your neighbor. Okay, so within that context, he says, judge not that ye be not judged. Okay, so don't 
place yourself as an arbiter in situations where you don't belong, he says, because then God will get involved on the other person's behalf. Now, we have to understand what that word judge means. Thayer says that the Greek word means to pronounce judgment, to subject to censure of those who act the part of judges or arbiters in matters of common life or pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. When you phrase it like that, we all know people who do that. Like in every situation, they place themselves as a judge, a mediator, an arbiter. Well, I'll tell you what I would do. Well, I'll tell you what they should do. Well, I'll tell you what the problem is. Okay, as soon as you do that, like as soon as you do that, you have placed yourself as, warranted or not, truthfully or not, an authority and someone with influence in the situation. And with that, Jesus is saying, comes some responsibility that you may or may not actually want. So, for example, ministry-wise, it is easy to say, and I've been a layperson, obviously, it's easy as a layperson to say, well, i tell you what the problem is. i tell you what the problem is. Well, it's very likely that you have no idea what the problem is, actually. But even if you do know what the problem is, have you ever carried the weight of said problem? Better example, people without kids telling people with kids how to parent. People with kids go, that's cute. N nice. Now, here's the thing. They may be right in principle in what they're saying. Like, it's easy to say, well, I mean, you know, tell you what, problem is like this one. <sighs> okay. Like, what, what do you even mean by that? Like, like, so here's the thing. Until you've been in the position where you have to repeatedly discipline all of the time and you realize the wear and tear that that takes on your ability to continue to discipline, and then you let things slip. I mean, you're disciplining one kid. That's one thing. Now, now there's two of them. Now there's three of them. And then they keep multiplying like rabbits. It's like, I'm having trouble keeping up with the discipline. So, yeah, okay, you can insert yourself as an authority and say, hey, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's this. It's like, well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But here's the problem. The problem is, is this within your jurisdiction? See, judges have districts, right? They have jurisdictions. They have areas of competence, areas of authority, areas that they regulate over. Is this your area of authority? If it's not, you shouldn't judge. And here's, there's a really important reason why, and we'll get to that in a second. Webster's 1828 says this word means to hear and determine a case, to examine and decide, and then number three, specifically, he says, this is the definition of the word in Matthew 7, to censor rashly or to pass severe sentence. Okay, to be rash in judgment, to be harsh or severe. All right, so that's what the word judge here means. So the meaning is twofold. Number one, do not judge others harshly or rashly because in so doing, you are ensuring harsh and rash judgment upon yourself from God and man. Okay, so one question is, again, this is like the law of reciprocity. What do you want from other people? What's the new law? The new law is do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That's the context of Matthew 7, 1, is the new law Jesus is giving on the mount. What's the new law? Love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? He says, okay, you do unto them as you would have them to do unto you. And that covers everything. Unlike the law of Moses, which was so interested in all the particulars, the problem is the particulars change generation to generation, culture to culture, time to time, even moment to moment, family to family, city to city. So the more particular you get, 
what's interesting is, and people, people place expectations on the Bible that if they were actually true, would be far worse than what's actually there. So, for example, they say, well, why doesn't the Bible just say specifically what I should and should not do in every single instance? Okay, have we not seen the failure of that in tyrannical, totalitarian societies? The more you try and manage people, like every jot and tittle of their being, the more they rebel against the authority, like by definition. So what has made the American system so sustainable and, and durable is the idea of self-government. Self-government, which is essentially based on this premise, love God, love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. It covers everything. So in, in a different, every situation, I don't have to flip open the guidebook and be like, well, what do I do when somebody has done wrong? How do I judge them? No, no, I just ask myself simply the question, what would I want that person to do to me? Well, I don't think it's to judge me severely or to judge me rashly without proper understanding or harshly. It's definitely not that. So of the many plethora of options there are in response, it's not that one. It's definitely not that one. So this is under the rule of do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And what Jesus is saying is that God, to some extent, we see this in the Old Testament as well, He treats you not based upon necessarily... God, allow, God allows you to determine to some extent His treatment of you. That's terrifying. He says, with the merciful, I will show myself merciful. With the froward, I will show myself froward. What? God is saying, to some extent, you determine how I treat you. And you determine that by how you treat others. That's terrifying. So, that should cause me to not flippantly throw, throw around Matthew 7.1. Don't judge me. <laughs> Don't judge me. Don't have any opinion about me. Don't tell me what to do. And then I turn around, of course, and I judge you very harshly. And then God comes to me and says, okay, then that's the precedent that you've set. And I am going to deal with you according to the precedent that you have set in your life. I see this all the time with people, especially in like family matters, whether it's you know, uh, parents, siblings, extended family, where there's just all of this harsh judgment. And it seems like some people to me are addicted to that harsh judgment. And I, I don't, again, I don't pretend to not understand why that is. It's way easier to focus on other people's problems than it is your own. It's way easier. It's, it's just emotional laziness in a sense. And I mean that exactly. Like that's what it is. It's emotional laziness to worry about somebody else's problems instead of your own. It's easy for me and Henry to sit around and fix the problems of the world at the coffee shop. That's not hard. And, and that's not even a bad thing to sit there and extrapolate out potentially what the you know, causes and the effects are. That's not a bad thing per se, right? Although you can go too far with that. The problem is when at the end of that, I think I've done something. So what I've done is maybe I understand something more clearly, but unless I bring it back down to a very local level, which Jesus was very concerned about the localist of all levels, which is the individual, as the, the locus of change, right? So that's where change really happens. We talked about that last week. Tear down your own altars in your backyard. 
tear down your, your grove to Baal. Okay, so until we get to that point, which is essentially what the text is telling us, then we don't understand the problem or the solution. We're going to continually think the problem is something that it actually isn't. All right, so then the second part of the meaning is this. The way to avoid this fate of harsh judgment from God and men, by the way. I mean, listen, I see people who they're constantly shocked at the way people treat them and don't connect it to their treatment of others. It's unbelievable. It's like if you're the person, every time somebody slips up and falls and messes up and does something wrong, you sit back like a Pharisee and almost gleefully rejoice or I knew it was coming and whatever, instead of meekly restoring them. Don't be surprised when people don't run to your side when you fall to help you. Like you shouldn't be shocked. In fact, that's exactly what you should expect. Like there's a law of reciprocity here that extends, of course, to your common man, but also God is saying, I will get involved. And I will treat you the way that you treat others. Okay, so the second thing is the way to avoid this fate is to not set yourself up as a judge or arbiter over matters in which you have no authority, influence, or invitation. So the only way to avoid being judged harshly and rashly and being censored unjustly, we might say, is to avoid setting myself up as a judge or arbiter over other people's matters in which I have no authority, no influence, or invitation. Don't pass a judgment on someone else you would not prescribe for yourself because that's exactly what you're doing. Before you get involved, we have to have the maturity to ask ourselves this question. Here's the question. Who am I to set myself up as a judge of this person in this situation? Am I in order? And the answer might be yes. So if my child messes up, I should not say, well, the Bible has called me to not judge. Uh, No. That is a misinterpretation of this passage. In fact, you are called to deal with your parents' parents' disobedience. I will judge them with your children's disobedience. And to not do that is a dereliction of duty. So you have the authority, the influence, and an invitation from God himself to deal with your child, for example. But some random person (laughs) over which I have no authority, no willing influence on their part, no invitation on their part into the situation. That's one of the most annoying things is when you have like, sometimes as a pastor, you're trying to deal with a problem, you get a third party who's really not involved. And they want to be involved, they're trying to be involved, they're trying to, it's like, everything would be better if you just went away. Because you have no authority over this, you can't actually change anything. You have no influence because nobody wants you involved and nobody has invited you into this. Listen, this is also true with family. I would say with extended family. So so the the hierarchy of the family gets way too expanded sometimes. And what I mean is that um, I'm one flesh with one person on the planet and that's my wife. That's my wife, okay? So my sister, I love my sister, but I'm not an authority over her. Not really. In this relationship, in the pastoral relationship, there's that, okay? So, I mean, if she's beating up somebody in the hallway, I can stop that, you know what I mean? I I can deal with that, okay? But if if she's doing something I don't agree with, okay, which, of course, would never happen, if she's doing something I disagree with, I have no authority over that. Now, I may have influence, but that is invited influence on her part. That's her part. And maybe she's already set that precedent. Hey, if you see something, call me out. See something, you don't, if, if something's not right, would you tell me? 
and people have those types of relationships. That's fine. There's an invitation for you to be a judge, you to be an arbiter. That's a good thing. The Bible says judge, righteous, judgment. Judge, righteous, judgment. Okay, but I can't usurp his authority as her husband to walk in and go, well, I'm her brother. It's like that means nothing. I have no authority in their home. I have no authority over their marriage. They have children. I have no authority over their children unless I'm babysitting them. Now, here's what we do. Okay, so for example, Rebecca can correct my kids. She can correct my kids. If my kids are doing something wrong in the church hallway, I want her to correct them. I don't want them running around like, you know, free-range children, like my dad would say, wild banshees destroying things and biting people. Okay, I don't want her going back, well, I don't want to get involved. No, please, get involved. There will be a criminal case. Please, get involved. That's fine. Um, But Harold Barton should probably not be, like, overly concerned about dealing with my children's flaws. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't have that authority, that influence, or that invitation. So I have to ask myself that question. Here's a great example. We won't turn there. But Miriam, Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, by the way. Miriam, the Bible specifically says, was a prophetess, okay? So Baptists are going to have to wrestle with that one. But she was a prophetess, all right? I know you don't like it, but it is what it is. Aaron was the spokesman for Moses and the high priest. My wife is a prophetess as well. It is No, she's not. <laughs> uh, she's co-pastor. No, she's not. Uh, it is not clear exactly what Miriam's problem was. She did have a beef with Moses. It, it's likely, it likely has to do with Moses' marriage to Zipporah, his wife. That's, that's probably what it was. She deemed his marriage as unlawful. Um, but they were married before the covenant was given. Like, so Miriam is obviously out of line. She's not thinking right. It's, it more so has to do with politics. That's clearly what it is. Um, Miriam was concerned that Zipporah had Moses' ear, and she did not trust Zipporah. That seems to be the case. Miriam, as his sister, wanted more influence. So what does she do? Well, she steps up into the proverbial judgment seat and drags Aaron by the ear along with her. Verse 2 of Numbers 12 says, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And then the most frightening words in the entire passage, and the Lord heard it. So she says, does God only speak by Moses? Does he not speak by us as well? And God goes, I'm sorry, what? Oh, what did you say? The Lord heard it. So the Lord hears the judgment I pass on others. The Lord hears the judgment that I pass on others, and then he responds in kind. Jesus would later say, Matthew 12, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. By your words. My words? What about his words? My words. The judgment I prescribe to other people becomes the standard by which God judges me. Terrifying. So God rebukes Aaron and Miriam in verses 5 through 9. We don't have to turn there. He essentially says, Aaron, Miriam, come here. Come here. He interrupts the conversation and calls them out like children and says, get over here. 
So our teenagers, some of them, know what this means with me. If they see me going like this, they're in trouble. And this happens involuntarily. Like, this is not something I plan. It's not something I just go, okay, they're in trouble. Let's say, you know, bring it up. All right, come here. No, so, so that, I don't know how it started. I don't, well, I don't know how it started with Keanu Richards. <laughs> I don't know how, how it started, but it started by, by me saying, hey, come here. It's like that. And then it's like, oh, snap. So I'm very easygoing for the most part in ministry, but I will snap into that authority figure super quick. We're going to be there just for a minute. Real quick, it's a blip on the radar. We'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming here in just a second, but we're going to deal with this right here, right now. So God essentially does the, the finger wag at Aaron and Miriam. He says, come here. They enter into the cloud. The cloud departs. Miriam stands covered in leprosy from head to toe. She thought a little too highly of herself. She esteemed herself a judge in a matter over which she had zero influence authority or invitation. She judged Moses harshly and she was judged very harshly in return. Judge not that you be not judged inherently means that if you judge, you will be judged in principle due to your judgment of others. So because you judged, you'll be judged in principle. But secondly, you'll also be judged in proportion to your judgment. So not only in principle because you judged, but how you judged, the way that you judged. First by God, who's the judge over all the earth, Genesis 18.25, but also by man, the law of reciprocity. In Luke's account of Jesus' statement about judgment, he says, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Watch this. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Oh, wow, God's going to give us what we give to others. True, but watch the next statement. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. You get from men what you give to them. And if you judge harshly, rashly, unjustly, and set yourself up as an arbiter in their problems, they will do the same thing to you. For with the same measure that ye meet, withal it shall be measured to you again. Your fellow man will give back to you the same kind and degree of judgment that you give out in many cases. James 3, 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation. Don't set yourself up as a judge because now you are held in a higher standard to a higher standard than the person you are judging. Is the judge not held to a higher ethical standard than the criminal that he's judging? He is. Of course he is. Okay, so here's one thing I have to realize. When I set myself up as a judge over someone, I'm not just equating myself to their situation. I am placing myself to an even higher standard than the one that I'm appealing to. Or may, maybe I should say, I'm setting myself up as the arbiter of the standard that I'm appealing to. I then have to meet that standard or exceed that standard. That's a scary thought. You receive a greater condemnation if you're a master, right? Doesn't, there's a reason why, uh, you might say, a fraud of an employee in punishment differs from the fraud of an employer. It's two different things. <clears throat> so you think about the consequence of the mistake of a parent is far greater than the consequence of the mistake of a child. 
because they're held to a higher standard. So a 16-year-old can commit the same crime as a 36-year-old, and who is judged more harshly? The 36-year-old. Be not many masters, knowing ye shall receive the greater condemnation. So then Luke, in Luke's record, he records Jesus as saying, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Still talking about judgment. Jesus is our master. Listen to this. And he did not judge us harshly, and in matters over which as a man he had no authority, influence, or invitation. Jesus deferred judgment in areas where he did not have authority. Do you hear what I said? You don't believe that. But it's true. Jesus deferred the right to judge in certain situations. Can you think of one? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Hey, should we pay taxes? Hey, Messiah, the one who's come up to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Do we have to pay taxes anymore? <laughs> he says, show me the money. Show me the money. Keep it getting, Junior. Show me the money. Whose face is on the money? Is it my face? No, sir. Caesar's face. Okay. Then you give Caesar what belongs to him. I have no right to come and tell you, don't give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. That's his. It belongs to him. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. That's Caesar's. Whoa. He also did not, in most cases, enter into a situation without an invitation. He never healed somebody against their will. That'd be hilarious. No, I want to be blind. <laughs> it's like, no, you're going to see. You know? But he often said, he said, according to your will, be it unto you. He said, don't cast your pearls before the swine, and he didn't do that. He didn't seek out to judge the Pharisees. He wasn't chasing them down. He was fighting them off. So what does the Bible say about our master concerning judgment? Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So watch this. Jesus didn't judge until he had been touched with the feeling of my infirmities. Jesus did not judge humanity until he came down and became a man. If my master didn't judge me before being touched by the feeling of my infirmities, then who in the world am I to place myself above his example? We've mentioned this before about, so we won't go into it, but about before God passing a judgment, him coming down. We see it three times in Scripture. We see it at the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, but also the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He lived among us and was touched by the feeling of our infirmities, tempted just like you and me, but without sin. And that's part of what qualifies me to judge, is coming down into the situation of the person that I presume to judge. So yesterday, we took the teenagers. Uh, we have a program, we did it a long time ago, we're re reviving it called Faith Works, which is kind of like a community service thing for our, our young people. And one of the things that we've wanted to do for a while, we finally did it this year, was Thanksgiving boxes for needy families. And we announced this, but uh, we put together a turkey and all the sides, enough to feed probably five or six people. And we had about 15 families that we were gonna help off of our bus route. Most of these people are in public housing, 
or um, apartments that honestly are way more expensive than they were just a few years ago and they're really not that nice and they're struggling to get by. So we went yesterday and gave out these boxes and you know these are people who their lives are not what they should be. Some of them are living in obvious and open sin. Um, some of them, you know, are not, they're out of church, almost all of them, and that's why they're letting their kids come with us. And it's easy to sit back. You could sit back and just kind of view that person in a vacuum and say, well, I mean, that, that's basically endemic of the problem. Right there. People like that. People who've wasted their money away on this and that. People who are in sin, people who are not doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, and maybe you're not wrong. Maybe you're not wrong. But I think about what Jesus did. Where instead of standing on the outside of that exact group as a Pharisee, casting down judgment on them, walked in their midst. He walked into that group of publicans, and harlots, and sinners, and he fed them, he taught them, he helped them. And he said, why? He says, because I am not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. He was just looking for sinners. People who knew that they weren't all they were supposed to be. The repentant were not to be found in the Sanhedrin. There were no repentant there. The repentant were found downtown in the alleys. And I think about Jesus, who was in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Think about that. Coming down, and not just coming down to another palace on earth or the rich part of town, but avoiding those people and going into the government housing of his day and getting shoulder to shoulder with the worst of sinners because those were the people who would be willing to accept him. So maybe we should allow ourselves to be touched by the feeling of the infirmities that we are about to condemn. The real question is, if God in human flesh would not judge or condemn before He had seen things from my perspective, then who in the world do I think I am? That's the real question. The real question in this passage is, who do you think you are? You might be the judge. If you're the judge, then judge. That's your obligation. You have to judge if you're the judge. If you're not, stay out of it. If you're not the judge, if you're not the arbiter, if you have no authority, influence, or invitation, then stay out. Stay out. Miriam, who do you think you are? Hey, Aaron, who do you think you are? Proverbs 26, 17. He that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh the dog by the ears. John 8, the woman who's taken in adultery, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. First cast a stone at her. And he says, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, then neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Hillel, who lived a little before Jesus' time, said, do not judge thy neighbor, until thou comest into his place. Do not judge thy neighbor until thou comest into his place. I'll give you a few thoughts as we finish. But the amount of judgment I exercise over something is in direct proportion to the amount of authority I have over it. Did you hear what I said? 
The amount of judgment I exercise over something is in direct proportion to the amount of authority I have over it. It goes like this. No authority, no judgment. If I have no authority, I have no right to judge. Not my kids, have no right to judge. Not my kids, can't judge. I can't judge your kids. Not my kids. Not my workplace, I can't judge that. Abraham called God the judge of all the earth, so God can judge in every matter that he wishes to. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He has authority over all the earth and therefore is judge over all the earth. So if the amount of judgment I exercise over something is in direct proportion to the amount of authority I have over it, the question becomes, over who or what do I have the most authority and therefore should exercise the most judgment? Me. Me. And that's where we end up in the passage. So he says, don't judge others, but he doesn't stop there. He turns around and says, now judge yourself. You have authority over you. You have influence over you. You have an invitation slash command by me to deal with your problems. So let me tell you who you should be judging you. And as you judge yourself, he says, something happens to your perceptions. One, the beam that you thought was in the other person's head ends up being in your head. Turns out they didn't have a big problem. They have a little problem. You have a big problem. The problem is in your perception. Notice the beam is in the eye. It's in the eye. The eye is the way you see things. It's your perception. Your perception is messed up. It's about perspective. You think the little thing on your cheek because of your perspective is just a little problem. No, it's a giant beam. It's massive, but you don't see it properly. Right after the verses on do not judge, he goes into the verses on the beam and moat. So if this is true, if I have authority over myself and therefore should spend my time judging myself, the question is then the exact right question. Jesus asked the exact right question. Why then beholdest thou the moat in your brother's eye? Good question. If judgment corresponds to authority and you have the most authority over yourself, therefore you pretty much have all you can handle in judging yourself, he asks the question, then why are you looking at somebody else's moat? Why are you doing that? He's calling out our hypocritical propensity to judge others to escape dealing with our own problems. Why are you looking at their problems when you know you've got your hands full with you? Jesus always asks the right question. What's the prescription? He says, consider your beam. He says, I know why you're beholding the moat, because you aren't considering the beam. You'd have to look in the mirror, so to speak. Self-judgment. I wish I could get into this, but that self-judgment with an external reference point that shows you how things actually are. James 1.23, beholding your face in a glass. You need an external reference point that shows you as you. Like you need that, which also means this. Here's a radical thought. Invite the judgment of others on you. What? What? Are you serious? Yes, because you need an external objective reference point that tells you if the thing that you kind of see on your face is a beam or some sawdust. And you probably don't have it within yourself to perfectly judge yourself. You need some help. 
So there's also, I believe, implicit in this passage, not only a call for you to judge yourself, but to invite other people to judge you. Hey, Justin, what's wrong with my swing? He goes, everything. It's worse than you could have possibly imagined. Really? I thought it was just a really minor fix. No, we have to change everything because you are the worst. So you go to the doctor. Doc, I got a little problem. Blood pressure's a little high. He's like, you got more problems than that, buddy. So he just set himself up as a mirror that you look into to see yourself as you actually are. So the next time you and I feel the need, I'm done. The next time you and I feel the need to exalt ourselves as a judge over the common affairs of men where there's no authority, influence, or invitation, the best thing I can do is go find an external reference point that reveals my inadequacies, of which there's no greater source than the Word of God and godly counselors who can describe my beam to me. Judge not that ye be not judged is a call for self-judgment. And self-judgment allows me to see clearly. I like what somebody said, the way we see the problem is the problem. The way we see the problem is the problem. Self-judgment humbles you and prepares you to be lifted up into an authority position over others. Judge not that you be not judged. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, share, and most importantly, follow the podcast. When you hit the follow button, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. See you in the next episode. God bless.